Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome to the China Sports Insider Podcast on the Seneca Network. I am Haig Balian, and in the studio in Beijing this week, it's the China Sports Insider, Mark Dreyer. Mark, welcome back to Beijing. Thank you, thank you. You, you brought the sunshine back with you, I see. Yes, uh, it is beautiful weather this week. Absolutely gorgeous and not yet too cold. Today, the WTA announces they are out of China D-Day for men's hockey is near, for real this time. F1 hints at doubling down in China. Then we talk to Stephanie Xiao. She's the marketing director for the NFL in China. She's been with the league since 2008, and she's seen a lot of things. So we'll we'll get to Stephanie in a little bit. But Mark, this, this WTA story had maybe not died down, but it was definitely quiet until last night, and it just came back with a vengeance overnight. Um, The WTA pulls out of China indefinitely, including Hong Kong. In a statement, the chief executive of the WTA, Steve Simon, expressed more concern about Peng Shui's safety and said that if her voice is suppressed, and I'm going to quote here, then the basis on which the WTA was founded, equality for women, would suffer an immense setback. Yeah, we, 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 we've talked about what that means financially for the WTA, but this puts some pressure on the ATP, the men's tour, and the IOC, which is holding a little event here in this city in a few months um, that might be getting some attention. What, what does this mean now, Mark? So there's a few angles, and, and we're talking now uh, Thursday morning Beijing time. So the, you know, overnight was when this statement, overnight for us, was when this statement came out of the U.S. Now, the previous update, the update that we'd had was this, you know, this IOC video call, and we kind of got the staged photo of, of Thomas Bach and, and, and Peng Shui chatting. Um, and nothing's really changed, to be honest. Basically, the, IOC, the, the WTA hasn't made any uh, uh, differing statements. It basically said, unless it gets answers, then it wasn't going to be playing in China. And now it's just making that more official. They're saying we are suspending until further notice. So not technically new, but the fact that they're putting out this statement is significant. You mentioned the ATP. And frankly, the men's tour can't come to China uh, while the women's tour have have laid down the gauntlet in this way. Um, I just can't see that happening. I mean, the backlash that they would receive from the West, from, from fans in the West, would be huge it would it would be you know a catastrophic i think for for, for them to, to do that so again they haven't said anything that they've, they've sort of initially had some tentative statements in uh, into in support uh it's it's obviously you know it's more to do with the women's tennis she, she's a women's tennis player so it's it's her tour that has been speaking out on her bef- behalf not the men's tour but we've seen a lot of male tennis players from the top all the way down speaking out on pung's behalf as well but I can't see the, the, the men's tour coming back. Yeah, but the men have a lot less at stake here. Correct. So, so, so yeah, so, so less disruption. We've said this before, though. Nothing really changes in the medium term, at least, because we're talking about the next tennis tournaments would be almost a year from now. And everything that we're seeing on the ground here in Beijing, Haig, is that China's not going to have 
international sporting events return in 2022. So then we'll be talking about two years from now, 2023. So again, nothing is really going to change dramatically anytime soon. The WTA have at least a little while to, to get the answers that they, they are asking for. I think what this does in practical terms, it they now can put out a calendar for 2022 and, yeah. <laughs> and officially announce that they're not going to have tournaments in China. Um, but they would have known that for months already, quite before, you know, even before the, the Peng Shui incident uh, uh, kind of came came about. Mark, but more immediately, what, what happens now with the WTA? Well, I'm not sure that, that we're going to hear too much more from the WTA in the short term, but of course... You know, people have already started to connect this to the Olympics. You know, the Olympics are just two months away. They're around the corner here in China. And so the sporting world, particularly the athletes, you know, Peng is an, is an Olympian, three-time Olympian. Yes, from a summer sport, but she's a three-time Olympian. You know, so so what role is the IOC going to play in this uh, other than the, than, than the kind of the, the video call that we talked about? But also, where do the athletes come in? Like, they're going to get asked about this at press conferences, I mean, that's just reality. It's it's kind of turning into a a bit of a nightmare scenario for China um, in terms of the PR perspective, um, because there hasn't really been much response from the Chinese side whatsoever, uh, and of course not domestically as as we've discussed. You know, it these are kind of the issues we've we talk, we saw in in gymnastics, for example, um, where the 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 Me Too thing is 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 an issue that, that people really rally around and show support of other people across sports so it's definitely possible that that athletes coming into china might certainly going to be asked about it and they might speak out about it too um and again that's going to keep this in the news uh because right now the tennis situation as we said is is kind of on pause for for quite a long time yeah in stark contrast f1 seems to be doubling down in China. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Zhou Guanyu joining Alfa Romeo this season. He is the first Chinese F1 driver. Yeah, for next year. For next year, exactly. So this week, the CEO of Formula One, Stefano Domenicali, he said that a second Grand Prix in China is 100% realistic. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I don't know what that means, Mark, but okay, so he went on to say that he's already received interest from a city in China about hosting a Grand Prix there. He didn't mention the city. I'm I'm going to guess it starts with Bay and and maybe end with Jing, but, you know, I could be wrong about that. Yeah, I well, let me jump in. I, I have a different opinion. It's 100% realistic, number one, in a parallel universe, or it's 100% realistic uh several years down the line, but it is not 100% realistic today. And and here are the reasons why. There's only one top-grade track in in the whole of China, and that is the Shanghai uh, International Circuit, where the Chinese Grand Prix has has been running since the, you know, the early 2000s. So there's no way they've been holding two races at the same track in Shanghai. That, that's No one has any interest in doing that. And that's not what he's talking about. They've tried street races in the past here in China, and some of them have been honestly catastrophic i mean that dtm came in uh, in shanghai in in i think 2013 um the the touring car series for from europe and early on one of the one of the the cars hit a, a massive manhole and basically didn't know what had happened stopped and the whole race was cancelled and they were going to come back and then they thought no it's just not worth it there was another race um super formula that that happened in in a street race in beijing um a few years back and the 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 turns were the hairpin was so tight that the cars were getting stuck, and again cancellation. So they've had Formula E, they've had other street races. I'm just saying the most immediate thing is a street race circuit, but I just don't see that happening. Well, okay, so I'm gonna show my. I, I don't know much about Formula One at all, but how complicated would it be to build a ring somewhere? That's I think what they're talking about, and I, and I think further down the line, that's definitely realistic. Hainan, I know for a fact, is interested in hosting international sporting Hainan, events. Hainan, okay. Yes, so this is kind of the island province off, off the, the southern coast of China. Um, you know, they, they bill it here as, uh, as, as China's Hawaii. Um, but, but yeah, it's a, it's a nice place to, to go. They, they've been trying to attract, they have a free trade zone. They've been trying to attract sporting events. I know there's discussions about building a racetrack there. So potentially that could be what they're talking about. But you know, nothing is nothing is under construction. Nothing is being built. So, so hundred percent realistic. Yes, okay. But with the with the caveat that you know we're talking 
a long way down the line at this point. And another potential challenge is that there are already 23 races in the F1 calendar. Look, the 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 with 23 slots on the calendar, they could definitely justify a second race in China. I mean, with Joe Guan Yu on the grid, and let's hope that it's not just a one season, you know, flash in the pan and that, that he can really build a career. It could be huge, not just for motorsport in China, but but for global motorsport. It really could be. So they need to be looking at a second race in China. I'm just I'm just saying that it's not going to happen next year or the year after or, or, you know, potentially the year after that either. All right, let's let's talk about hockey. Okay. Yes. Uh, we didn't talk about this last week. No. Yeah. We last week we we waited really really late for a decision that, that never, never came, came. Yeah. from the International Ice Hockey Federation about whether the Chinese men would play in the Olympic hockey tournament. They'd set a deadline, a deadline for last Thursday. I guess they they'd watched a couple of uh, Kunlun Red Star games and they were going to make a decision after that. The deadline came and went. We heard nothing. And then they set another deadline, uh, December 6th. What are you hearing, Mark? Okay, so I'm hearing a lot. There is, there's so much to this story. I, I tend to get a little bit overexcited whenever we talk about the, the, <laughs> the Chinese men's ice hockey team just because it's a fascinating backstory. Um, and I, we, you know, we're not going to go into the full details, but here's, here's the situation as best as I can sum up at the moment. They had those two games in Russia, and uh, technical officials went over to, to, to watch the Olympic squad uh, as represented, you know, they're, they're currently playing as the, the Kunlun Red Star team, but that's effectively the basis of China's Olympic squad in Russia. They lost both games, but, you know, they played okay. These guys can play, you know, they're competitive, they're, they're professionals. That's not it. That's not that's not an issue. So, so from that point of view, um, everything was okay. The next step was, and this has been the issue that has been discussed since at least 2017, is are these people qualified? Are these players eligible to represent China? Now, the first and foremost, they need a Chinese passport. The vast majority, to my knowledge, don't yet have that in their possession. There are, of course, some domestic homegrown players who are still on the team. There are at least one who's 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 previously um, sort of converted over to, to Chinese citizenship but these so-called heritage players the uh, North American players of of um, Chinese descent don't yet have the passport and of course you can't play for China unless you have Chinese citizenship yeah it seems so you, like ha- a- you have to have the citizenship but then you also have to pass the IIHF eligibility rules now the, that's a, a little bit tricky most of them have played long enough for the Chinese team that they would qualify a couple of them a handful of the players um there would need to be a little bit of wiggle room here because um, they'd previously represented uh, another country, either the US or Canada, at youth levels. And so they'd have to be an, an additional two years of eligibility. But we're kind of getting into the weeds here. And, and the, the IIHF has previously said, behind the scenes, they'd never say this publicly, behind the scenes, they, they told the Chinese team, look, we can work with you on this. Just tell us who you need in and, and we'll figure it out. But there is one big wrinkle. Some of these players who have grown up in Canada, most of them, um, they're thinking, well, what does this mean to have Chinese citizenship? I ha- I'm sitting here, I happen to have two passports, but but China, you can't have a Chinese passport and an additional one. Um, China doesn't allow that. So basically on the Chinese side, they are saying you have to give up your Canadian passport um, or your American passport, depending on, 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 on which player we're talking about. And there's some uncertainty as to what happens later in life, post-Olympics, maybe after their hockey career is gone. Are they stuck being Chinese for the rest of their life? Now, everyone kind of thinks, well, this is a China decision because China's forcing them to do this. But actually, it's, it's, it's kind of about the other country. You know, if it's Canada we're talking about, will Canada have you back? Does Canada make you give it up? There could be a situation where you sign a piece of paper to say, yeah, I'm only Chinese, I'm Chinese and, and nothing but... But I keep my Canadian passport and, and I don't really tell anyone. Yeah. But is there precedence for this? I mean, there must be. There is precedence, but no details. Mm. Um, and the precedents have been in soccer. So so uh, we've had some some players who have naturalized. We've had some Brazilians. We had a couple of players from Europe who now represent the Chinese national team in soccer. 
it is my understanding. And again, it would be hugely embarrassing if any of this was made public. And so we're never going to get official confirmation of this. But it is my understanding that they've basically been told by the Chinese authorities, once you're done, you can go back. We don't, we're not going to stop you, right? Now, their original country may or may not have a problem with that. That's kind of a separate issue, but it's actually got nothing to do with China. Um, and so there's a certain amount of, there's a certain amount of uncertainty here. To, to me, it, I can sum it up this way. It's shades of gray here. There's a little bit of, you know, you have to kind of be, you're operating it in some sort of, you know, uncharted territory. No one can give you a hundred percent answer. And for some of the players, they need a black and white answer and they're not going to get it. You've spoken to some of the players, or at least you've been in contact with some yeah. of the players. Yeah. What sense are you getting about what way they're going to fall? It, it, the best, the best uh, as I can work out right now, it sounds like there are a handful of players who are kind of holding out. Um, I don't exactly know what they're expecting anyone can say at this point. Um, I, I guess it's that, 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 you know, China says you you don't have to give up your your other passport. You know, we can keep it in a safe for you, or you can keep it in your safe. You don't have to renounce because that potentially might have issues if they want to return to Canada at some point post Olympics. I don't think China's in a position to do that. Like they they just you know, so it's it's kind of who's going to blink first, and it sounds like no no one's <laughs> blinking, and so these players, unfortunately for them, I think they're kind of going to be the ones who who lose out on their Olympic dream, but. It's their choice. It's an individual decision. Some players are comfortable with it. Some are not. Now, the implication of this is that it's going to mean that the Chinese Olympic squad is going to be weaker than it might have otherwise have been. And they're already massively up against it, playing the US, playing the Canadians, and playing the Germans, who are also incredibly strong. So that's not good for anyone. You know, I just, you know... Yeah, look, it's up to them. I th- I kind of feel like they've come this far. They've been playing with the Chinese team for for several years. They're part Chinese, you know. Everyone else is kind of doing it. Hey, <laughs> but but I understand there's there's some very specific, very personal decisions that they're making, and if they're not comfortable with it, then then that's that's their choice. So so right now, your sense is that just on December sixth, the WIHF will announce that you know this is just a, a guess at this point, right? So that they'll play. But there may not be a full roster of these heritage players. We don't actually know what what decision they're going to make on December 6th. Now, put it this way. Say 20 of the heritage players all refuse to sign and suddenly, you know, they're not going to play for for Team China. Then the the team that we're looking at for the Olympics is dramatically different from the one that that has been evaluated and tested just a few weeks ago in Russia. So... At that point, if that were to happen, and I don't think it is, but were that to happen, then maybe they think, well, then, okay, you're way too weak to be playing in the Olympics and they have to kick them out. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think they'll have enough and they're just basically trying to get as many of these heritage players to agree as possible. They wanted to get this done weeks ago, but the players said, you know, we're not comfortable signing. And I, I don't think, I, I'm not hearing any headways being, being, making, uh, being made. I think, you know, um, we might even hear before the 6th that a couple of the players um, have, have left camp. So that's something to watch in the next few days. It's a mess. But honestly, this has been a mess all year long. And, and even going back, you know, several years, this, this, this has been, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, got you. Okay, well, uh, I mean, we're, we're obviously going to keep a really close eye on this, and I'm pretty sure we're going to have something to talk about next week. I think so. Yeah. Uh, Stephanie Shao is one of the first people the NFL hired after it opened up its offices in China in 2007. She's seen a lot of things, a lot of growth and a change in the interest of American football in China. We talked to her earlier this week about the NFL's growth in China, how people in China watch football and whether an NFL game will ever be played in China. Stephanie, we've known each other, you know, for a long time, I think, not quite since, since you know, you joined the league in 2008 and, of course, back, you know, with the Olympics time when the Patriots had their office here in China. But I've probably lost count of the number of times I've, you know, asked you and your colleagues, you know, when is when's China going to have its first game, NFL game here? You know, preseason, regular season, whichever it is, like... Do, do you get? Do you guys get sick of that question, fielding that question? Because um, you've, you know, presumably had it so many times over the years. Is it still the long, long-term goal here in China, or or has the strategy 
over the years kind of pivoted away to, to more of the grassroots efforts? Yeah, I would say I personally never get sick of that question because it shows that there's an interest, right? People want to see a game here in China. Um, I think from a league perspective, we have identified the key challenges um, that need to be overcome in order to hold a game in China, um, namely the logistics of bringing teams over during the NFL season. I think we would want to make sure that we put our best foot forward and we're not you know, playing an exhibition game, we want it to be, you know, a game that counts. That's for points. Um, so if you're bringing a team over during the, during the regular season, how do you maintain competitive balance um, for teams after they make that trip over here and then kind of the next week um, go and, and, and resume their play in the U.S.? Um, as well as just the lack of available game inventory. I think knowing that most NFL teams, they play, you know, a very limited season. Every home game counts. It's eight home games. That's it. Um, and as I mentioned, I think we want to put our best foot forward and able, able to deliver that like authentic live game experience. So that takes a lot of time and a lot of work. Um, I would say those challenges to bringing a game in China um, are ones that we have not yet found the solutions to, but um, certainly are actively still still trying. So on that note, we're sitting here in Beijing. You're in Shanghai, Steph. You know, we have a couple of great stadiums, the Burzner Stadium, the, the rebuilt Workers Stadium under construction now. Um, do you think uh, we, we might up here in the capital feel, uh, host that game or is uh, Shanghai going to have other ideas? That is a t- that's a good question. Um, and who knows? I would say with every year that passes, you know, there's some some great stadiums that are being built, uh, even in Shanghai as well. So, um, yeah, I think that that's that's the question that goes along with, you know, as well as much as who would play. It's where would it be played? Yeah. And, and- I guess with the introduction of the seventeenth game, I mean, I'm 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 speculating myself. Like, wow, that maybe maybe that's something that sort of gives space to that problem. Yeah, I think that um, that while there were a lot of considerations, I imagine that go into kind of the, the competitive um, aspect of the game and whether or not you know adding adding games and adding the extra the extra week. I think that there there was that does open up as, as mentioned, kind of that available game inventory and you know does it allow for more games to be played? Uh, outside of the U.S., right? You're looking at um, the NFL has played a number of games in the U.K., you know, certainly Mexico, Canada, um, you know, does that open up um, additional options? So I think that that is an exciting development and we'll hopefully see see what comes of that. How how important is it for the NFL uh, to, to develop the sport in China? Honestly, making the game locally relevant is integral to our growth strategy. I think people need to feel like it's part of their daily lives and see themselves in the game um, for us to move beyond the perception that this is only a game that foreigners play or this is a sport, you know, it's not suitable for the Chinese body or, you know, for, for Chinese culture. I think that, um, that developing the sport is a key, like, block to making it seem like it is a sport that everyone can play. So how do you do that? Like, how do you do that outside the NFL, for example? Because, you know, American football isn't really part and parcel of the, you know, or hasn't been uh, part and parcel of the Chinese sort of sporting experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it comes with, um, you know, focusing on, hey, what are, where are the areas that we can control? I think, and this has been something for as long as the NFL has been in China, I think we started out focusing even before the NFL, I think, officially set up um, an office here, we were working with, uh, you know, middle schools and working to get flag into schools. And I think that's something that we've we, we kind of moved away from that and focused more on kind of media distribution and getting making games accessible. And then now there's definitely a I would say a, a renewed focus on getting more kids and youth to play the game. So starting, I would say this year, we um, worked with our local football development team here to kind of really like step back and say, okay, we need to refine and refresh our, our strategy when it comes to growing the game. Because I, I think when you look at uh, certainly other sports, maybe there are federations, right? You have, um, you know, local federations that are, that are focused on just developing the game. And then the professional leagues are kind of able to sit and like enjoy a little bit of just being the professional league. And I think here um, as the NFL, it goes hand in hand. We have to both grow the fandom of our 32 clubs, as well as knowledge and understanding and familiarity with the sport. So you ask kind of, what do we focus on? I think NFL flag is our first, I would say, our our in. Um, It's a non-contact way to teach the game of football. Uh, You don't need the the pads or the equipment. All you need are, you know, we we focus on, it could be played with 
you know, touch, but we focus on flag. So flag belts, football, um, and just starting with getting into schools. Um, we launched a program earlier this year um, where we were targeting PE teachers and any PE teacher that had an interest in teaching the game or adding it to their own curriculum, we were able to seed out flag starter kits. So I think that was something that's very, you know, it was an initial step and we were oversubscribed. I think we had like over a hundred PE teachers um, or organizations reach out to us to say, I'm interested. And then I think as of now, we've probably seeded out 50 kits with, you know, certainly more interest. So I think that's how do you continue building that? That I would say is kind of a, a bottom up because you're, it's, it comes from the interest of the PE teacher themselves. And then at the same time, you think about, okay, well then what can we do to have, to work towards getting flag football added as a, you know, as a, as an actual PE sport, right? Is that something that we can work with the local sports bureau, the local, you know, ministries of education um, to actually get flag football into schools and have it be both a, you know, a top down as well as a bottom up um, prospect. So I think that that, I mean, I would say flag is kind of our, 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 our entry, our entry point. Um, and then that's, I think the goal of that to really is to increase participation and general understanding of this game, you know, the strange shaped ball. And then you, and then you kind of move forward towards, okay, well, if you get kids playing or youth playing, you want to make sure that they have opportunities to compete. So then that then is, okay, can we work with regional operators, um, you know, partners in cities across China to host and organize flag tournaments. So you have not only kids that play, then maybe they learn to play in school, but then they can actually go and compete and then work towards creating kind of that, that pipeline of, um, I don't want to say elite talent right away, but just people who are more familiar with the game and, and you give them a goal to play. When you survey the landscape here in terms of trying to attract kids into playing football here in China, you know, from my point of view, I just want people playing sports as much as possible and the Chinese wider sports industry will will organically develop. It doesn't matter to me so much which sport they play. Do you see other sports, other US sports or, or just other sports in general as competing for the same kids um, or is, you know, the, the more sport that's played, the better? It's interesting that you mentioned like competing kind of for mind share. And I would say I'm in the same boat that you are. I think it, the more that kids are active and they're, the more that they're exposed to different, I think, sports um, from an early age, they can kind of then choose, you know, what, what interests them. And I, I know that like certainly in places that we might have grown up there, it, it was quite normal for people to play, you know, a winter sport and a fall sport and like not have to specialize until you get a little bit older. Um, and I think that that's, I think that's the beauty of sport. It's just, you know, whatever you enjoy at the time, wherever your friends are, I think that that's really what indicates, um, you know, whether or not you stay with a sport. Um, yeah, but I think that, uh, you, you certainly, you always do keep an eye, you keep an eye on kind of other, other, um, other sports leagues and what they're doing and how they're engaging, because I think that is something that we can learn from and hopefully that others can learn from us as well. We had John House on the show a few weeks back talking about the development of, of, of kids playing hockey here. And, and he said that uh, in his sports, at least, kids get to, you know, 12, 13, 14. And then there's a significant drop off in terms of participation levels and, and kids get pulled away to, by academics and, and other things. Do you see something similar in football? Are kids perhaps staying with the sport longer? Uh, are things trending in the right direction, at least? Where are we? Yeah, I think what we've noticed, and I would say that we're still very much in like the early stages of kind of developing that, whether you call it a participation pyramid or whatever it is. Um, but you definitely see, I think that in, in youth football right now in China, um, and I would say youth football being kind of 18 and below, you see a growth at the, let's call it under seven, all the way up to like age 12, as you mentioned. And then as they get into more of that academic pressure kind of peer, that stage of their life, you see a drop off. So less kind of late middle school, you know, high school. And then you see a bunch of um, students pick up the game at, you know, in, in university. And then also as kind of adults, there's this very large kind of adult football, um, football scene uh, here in Shanghai, but certainly across other parts of China as well. So I think that there is that... Um, I don't want to say it is that kind of broken pipeline where I think because people don't see what is the pathway, right? Where can I continue playing? There's no professional, you know, aspirational path. Um, and I think that 
that's hopefully something that, you know, we would love to develop and shepherd and support because I think you, in order for people to not kind of fall out of that pipeline, you need a way for them to say, okay, I can still, I can still play this and maintain my grades. Or it's something that's seen as in playing this sport that helps me, you know, focus on my studies or it's something that's complementary, not something that's taking away time from all the studying and, and how important it is at, at like during that kind of late middle school and, and high school period. In, in terms of outreach, uh, a couple of years ago, Tom Brady had these at this great web series, which, you know, as, as a Chinese learner, I found I found very relatable. I, I mean, I really related to his Mandarin pronunciation. Um, <laughs> what what was the impact of, of, of those of that web series? Did you did you see anything uh, here in China? Yeah, that was great. I think it was such a boon for Tom Brady to kind of put his hand up and say, I'm interested, you know, as when he was on the Patriots at the time to say, you know, oh, you're, you know, the Patriots, I think it was really um, very gr- smart on their parts. They said, we want to create custom content for our fans in China. I think, you know, Tom got wind of this and said, oh, great. Like, I would like to do something as well. So it, it, it all kind of went hand in hand. Um, I would say the Patriots saw major growth in fandom and their social following and engagement during that period when they had this on the heels of the Tom Brady show. Um, and they're a team that have been very intentional um, with engaging their Chinese fan base, um, creating custom content, as I mentioned, you know, generating um, custom campaigns to, to engage their Chinese fans um, is a strategy that's working well um, as the Patriots, as of now, are the most followed NFL club on Weibo. Um, and one of the top selling teams when it comes to NFL shop on, on, on Tmall. Um, and they also have a very active fan base that will self-organize. They have a fan club in Beijing, in Shanghai, and also an official fan club, um, I believe in Guangzhou. Um, so they have, you know, their, their fans will be organizing things on their own. That's, you know, not necessarily even club led. So it's been great to just see the organic growth of that. Um, and certainly, hopefully, um, there will be other players that will engage as well. Yeah, I mean, has that has that happened at all? Have you heard from other players that? Yeah, I think um, we definitely have other players. Uh, maybe not as high profile, but certainly, I think players that are on the, the the you know the up and up. Taylor Rapp is one. He's a safety for the Los Angeles Rams. He is actually of Chinese descent. His mother is from Shanghai, so he has that connection. And the Rams have also been very, um, I would say, very focused on uh, creating content for Chinese fans and engaging their Chinese fan base. Um, Russell Wilson is another. Uh, player. Um, He's actually visited China um, a few times, a couple times with his family um, pre-pandemic. And then we have some of the, I guess, the newer kind of rookies that, and I feel like you tend to see more uh, interest, I think, in uh, going international or growing their international fan base from a lot of these younger players. Uh, Mac Jones is one that comes to mind. Um, He's a quarterback for the Patriots now. Uh, And I think pre-draft, he was focused on, you know, ways, how can I engage, you know, my, my fan base in China and just finding ways. I think he, he's learned Chinese or he took some Chinese classes, I, I believe when he was in school. So he, there are some fun videos of him on Bilibili where he's, you know, speaking Chinese and talking, talk, engaging with his fans, but hopefully there will be more. Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing. Like these really like smart young players who just, I mean, who just seem to have it. Like when I was 22 years old, 20, 23 years old, there's no way I would be thinking about this stuff. And, and it's so impressive that they are. Yeah. And I think the world is just a little flatter with social media, kind of the way that it is. So um, yeah, definitely with that, I don't want to you know, categorize, but whether it's Gen Z or younger, it's <laughs> yeah. just a lot more socially savvy. Steph, my understanding of how you guys operate here is that you effectively have to kind of spread the love equally between all 32 teams. Now, in reality, of course, some of the teams are going to resonate, resonate more with an international audience. Some are going to be popular, more popular than others. So how does that work in terms of what the teams can do individually in the Chinese market versus what has to go through you? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're lucky in that at least all 32 clubs have presence on Weibo. Um, level of engagement kind of varies throughout, as, 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 you, as you mentioned. Um, but I think as we as a league, I think because we um, were the first to kind of establish the league presence on social, uh, on Chinese social, whether that's Weibo, WeChat, Douyin, um, Kuaishou, Bilibili, um, we have that kind of built-in following. So whenever clubs are looking to... Uh, come into China or to increase their fan base, I think a lot of times they'll reach out to us to say, hey, we've created this content. Would you be able to amplify it and let your fans know, the people that are following the league account already, that 
you know, such and such team is doing this or, hey, such and such team is running this campaign. So I think it tends to work hand in hand. Um, I will say, you know, our goal is to get people to follow a specific club or most likely a player first, because that's really where um, avidity kind of deepens. No one is a fan of the league on by itself. Everyone, I think, is driving towards, oh, I'm a fan of the Bills, or I'm a fan of the Patriots, or I'm a fan of, you know, the Rams. Well, so, unless you're Rob um, Lowe, who, who did go to the Super Bowl <laughs> with that NFL hat once, which was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting because I think that um, here, from a merchandise perspective, we see just the Shield standalone um, equally kind of um, sells alongside, you know, Patriots branded merchandise or, you know, Rams branded merchandise. So it's um it's quite interesting. People really do like that that just that shield by itself. Um and you know, I will I will take it. Steph, there's a lot of talk here about how individual stars, individual athletes kind of sometimes resonate more with Chinese fans than than teams. Now, one great example of a football player here is is Jackson Her, who has been playing for for Arizona State and I believe is the first Chinese-born player to, to score a touchdown in one of the, uh, in the basically in the top tier of, of college football. Now he's such a great individual, really engaging, you know, super nice guy. And some of his clips have gone viral, but he's not in the NFL. So how do you engage with him? You know, someone like him whose story is really going to resonate with with Chinese fans and and someone to whom Chinese kids can aspire to be like. Oh, it's a great point. Um, we love Jackson Ho. Um, and I think he's really galvanized the local the local football fan base here. Um, kind of coming from the professional side of of, of the sport, um, there are limits in what we can do um, around football, kind of at that university level and below, because he still is an NC2A athlete. He's still eligible. Um, but that being said, I think uh, as mentioned, the football community in China is very close knit, and our fans were super proud to watch how he has been, um, you know, how he was successful and how he's you know gained a greater exposure. Um, and are certainly are proud to see a fellow Chinese perform well and, and achieve success. Um, what we do and what we can do is um, amplify, I think, the stories like his of these local players, uh, of these Chinese athletes, and raise awareness so our fans can really follow along on their journey and hear about how they came into the game. Because as you mentioned, Jackson Ho did come in quite late. He um, he started playing high, uh, high school football uh, when he was in the States. And I think that that actually is um, not that unusual of a story. You have a lot of um, players at the professional level who maybe came into the game when they were in high school, or even some now with this NFL um, international player pathway, where they started as a player um, and achieved, you know, great success in a totally different sport. And then that kind of raw athletic talent was able to transfer over to football, someone like a Jordan Melata or a Samus Reyes um, coming from rugby and basketball, respectively. So I think that there, it does create, I think that that aspirational pathway and that chance of, you know, this is not totally out of the realm of possibility. This could happen. Um, and I think that when we talk about, you know, identifying kind of that elite player pathway, looking at both younger students, younger athletes, how can we get them into the pipeline sooner, whether that's high school pipeline into the NC2A pipeline, um, or, Players that, you know, have have com- competed and, and achieved, you know, in, in a totally separate sport, but then are willing to give it a go um, in football. And how can we then um, transfer, I think, that, that, that athletic talent? Um, so it's a little bit of both. How do fans in China watch the NFL? Um, we have a great partner in Tencent. So uh, Tencent is our, digi- our exclusive digital broadcast partner. So all of the live games... Um, Tencent has the rights to, and they uh, launched a subscription product last year that allowed uh, that allows fans in China to watch all NFL games um, live, condensed, on demand, in local language, as well as uh, with the original English audio. So that's been um, an exciting product for us to launch. Really? You have yeah. the original English as well? Oh, the NBA yeah. does not have that. Yeah, so I think it was something that a lot of our fans, uh, whether they were, you know, born and raised here in China or, you know, they're expats living here in China, it's something that was that we were able to, uh, uh, yeah, to work with Tencent and Tencent was able to, to put that product out there, which I think was, a, was made a lot of fans happy. How are football fans in China consuming NFL games? Are they watching full games? Are they watching, you know, just the, the top 10 plays of the week? You know, what are they watching today and, and how has that consumption of, of, of the sport changed over the years? 
Yeah, so I would say I think even from the from the jump, from the very start of when we when we started airing, you know, live games in China, I think given the time difference, it's always it's we've always had to be digital first, I think. Um to think that people are going to sit in front of a television for 3 hours, you know, on a Monday morning between 1 a.m. or 4 a.m. or yeah, even, yeah. you know, Tuesday morning 8:30, hey, Friday morning 8:30. I've done it. I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> not every week. <laughs> not every week. Yes, I think it certainly takes a toll. Yeah. Um Yeah, but I think that so we've had to always focus on okay, how can we best serve our fans when they want, where they want, with what they with what they're looking for. So I think um there certainly are people, you know, I think there certainly are fans that will will watch a full game, you know, on on a on a weekday morning um live. And then I think you have a, a group of people that maybe they just they want to catch the highlights. So wherever they are, if they're on on WeChat or they're on Weibo, we want to make sure that they can at least stay updated with what's happening in the game. And then you have I think um one of the great things about the Tencent, you know, NFL subscription product is that you, we we were able to condense the games. So if you watch on demand, you watch with like all of the commercials commercial time cut out, all of the kind of uh, it's basically just whistle to whistle so all the game action. So you can watch a full game in 40 minutes. That's amazing. Um, which wow. I think yeah, which I think helps with people who just want to watch their own team or just catch up on what might have happened. Where are the commentators? Are they here? Do they get to do they go to the games? Like how how do you how do, how does that work? That is a great question, and I feel like it, it could warrant its own um, its own episode. Um, so, ten, all of Tencent's commentators, all the games that they that they air, that they show, they have a local uh, broadcast team that will cover it. So, whether it's a team of two, a team of three, for all of the games, even the ones that come in, you know, at at, at early early in the morning, um, all these broadcasters, I believe that they're mostly based in Beijing because they'll go into studio um, and do the broadcast. Um, yeah, so they're all local. They're all here. They're all, uh, I think all came into it in different ways and they each have their own style, their own, you know, some guys are color, some guys are, you know, more play by play. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's been very interesting even just to find, uh, and to work with some of these commentators because it's just such an interesting job having to translate while also following the, the live game action and, and explaining the game like in a way that people can very quickly understand what they're what they're trying to say. I mean, are there Chinese words for things like touchdown or yellow flag or you know, there's so many terms in any given football game. Yeah, absolutely. Um a couple of years ago, our football operations um department in the US uh put together a list of nearly 800 football terms. Um 800. everything from yeah, everything <laughs> it was it was part of like the it was the I believe it was the like the AI voice assistant kind of in the lead up to playoffs. So someone could say, you know, Alexa, what is a quarterback or something like that? And then right. they, they'd have like a, a definition, right? So we were able to get this list um, from our football operations team. Um, and with the help of local, like a local football brain trust that was made up of local commentators, local players, local coaches, local referees, um, and super fans, they were able to like totally take that and localize it in Chinese language. So everything from, like I mentioned, quarterback to what is a double doink to what is a cover two to what is a Tampa two and all of these terms. Um, and I have this glossary. I'm happy to share it with you, but you know, if you, if you want to bolster your, your football, your football terminology. Well, I was just thinking it was what a great way to learn Chinese as well. I mean, just sort of like, you know, through, through sport. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's not just, I mean, the reason why we, we worked with like, I guess this, 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 this close group of people who are very, very close to the game is that we didn't want it to just be a word for word translation because it's very cumbersome when you're trying to explain it quickly you know as a, like a, a lot of the commentators they have to explain it in you know two or three characters and then to follow the pace of the game so they were thinking from a you know contextual point of view how can, how can we explain this so that it makes sense to a first like a first time listener as well as go into more depth so that we can satisfy the needs of an avid fan who's maybe tuning in who wants to learn more about the strategy and the X's and O's and the play-by-play. So at one end of the scale, you're going to have the hardcore fans who know, you know, maybe even six, seven hundred of those 800 terms you, you mentioned. And then at the other end, the, the newbies, they're, they're only going to know a handful, if that. So do you think of it as as two big buckets, hardcore fans and, and, and fresh fans, or, or more of a spectrum? Yeah, I would say it's a spectrum. From a like from a when we create content, I think we definitely will create it with uh, is this a for a rookie or a beginner fan in mind, or is this to service more of the avid fan? 
Um, I think that from a broadcast perspective, our commentators, they have to be able to do both. They have to be able to teach the game while commentating and following the live game action. I'll say that like as an example, Tencent in their game broadcast, while you have the game action going on, there are a lot of ad breaks. And what they do is in those ad breaks, they'll actually create kind of these vignettes where it will explain parts of the game. So if you just, the, the, you know, the, the live game broadcast ended and went to commercial with, you know, a kickoff or a field goal, then immediately in the commercial break time, they might insert something that explains what a field goal is. So you have something that will kind of segue into someone who might be tuning in for the first time and, and explaining a little bit more about the game to them. Steph, I've been lucky enough to, to meet some of the absolute legends that you guys have brought over over the years. You know, Joe Montana, Peyton Manning, Jerry Rice, Russell Wilson, like really, really top players. Obviously, COVID makes that very, very difficult at the moment. So what's the plan from that point of view? Any plans to get some more athletes over post-COVID? I think, um, yeah, that's been, I, th- I think, one of the one of the, the drawbacks to just not being able to travel as freely internationally. Um, I know that like the Rams... Prior to COVID, they were they were planning like literally the, like before like February of 2020, they were planning on having Taylor Rapp come out, um, and because he, he he I think that was his rookie season, and he shot this whole um, the Rams had this whole series called Unwrap where they followed him throughout his rookie season. It was going to end with him making a trip back to China. Um, unfortunately, that didn't happen, but I still think that that's on on the hopefully you know on the docket somewhere. Um, I think that there are certainly players that have come out before, like Russell Wilson, you know, he wants to come out again, um, and just continue building that, 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 that rapport with, with Chinese fans that follow him. Um, yeah, I think that that as, as things, you know, open up eventually, um, hopefully we get a lot more players that are willing to come out. Um, and yeah, and, and engage with, I think the local fan base here. I think a lot of the Mark, you mentioned a lot of the legends that, that came out. And I think that was because we were hosting events on ground during the season, and it was obviously legends actually had the time and they were retired to be able to, to make the trip. I think um, we definitely see the benefit of having current players come out in the offseason to engage with fans because then it it's someone that fans can continue then watching once the season starts. And there is a little bit more of that. Wow. Like I had you know, Tom Brady came out to China and they were able to see him. And, and, and that, that certainly helps kind of build that build that fan following. I'm going to wrap it up there. Stephanie, thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time. It was so great talking to you. Sure. No problem at all. The time went by very quickly. I felt like I had so much more to share. Oh, well, we'll, we'll have to, you'll have to come on again. Well, that was Stephanie Shao. Uh, Mark, 800 football terms. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, <laughs> yeah. How many, uh, I mean, how many could you get? Uh, in Chinese? Well, <laughs> I mean, let's start with English. I mean. No, I, it just sort of goes to show like just, just how... I don't know. It's just, it's very cultural, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it kind of you know, particularly for for amongst those hardcore fans, you know, there'd be pride in like you know how many terms do you know? I love the fact that they have like uh, commentating teams, like like for each for, for for each team, you know, like like they do the same games and so on. They're all in Beijing, just kind of like the hardcore hardcore fans first, probably, but commentators second. And you know, I was I was just sort of like. A little bit of disbelief about the fact that fans here can listen to the games in English because the NBA just does not do that, and I and I do not understand why. I think you know, and I could be, and this could only maybe apply to some people, but I I've spoken to a lot of of you know younger Chinese who have studied in the states. They've come back, and they've really got into football either at college or you know they've they've picked up NFL, and then they've come back and and it's kind of a way to connect and they actually prefer the english it's not necessarily about learning the language but it's right. you know and, and again with 800 terms like you kind of know the term in in, in english yeah. not rather yeah. than chinese yeah. must be a nightmare for the uh, for for the commentators so fascinating but yeah kind of what what struck me i think was was she talked about the pipeline of players really interesting that that you know you've got those different segments of society you've got the people who've returned and then sometimes now they're they're, they're parents and so maybe they're playing with their friends and their kids are kids are playing as well, but it's not continuous. There's still that kind of drop off around high school, um, which is a shame. But that's something more to do, and I think you know societal trends over here. So that's going to be something that's very hard to change. But hopefully, hopefully, you know, if they can kind of fill in the gaps, then there could be a few more players potentially. You know, going to college and and after that, who knows? Well, the first question was when will there be a, an NFL game? here and she was talking about the, just the limited inventory of games 
And the you know the thing is like they just did just this, this season for the first time add an extra game so it's not just eight home games and, and eight away games I'm not exactly sure how they've sorted that that out for it to be fair potentially that does give space to have these you know international games you know she mentioned the UK the London game I mean London I think has has been beyond maybe not but but beyond most people's wildest dreams in terms of development of the international game huge right they're talking about a team that i mean yeah. i grew up in the uk before the the nfl games were, were played there and there was a pretty hardcore fan base like yeah late night channel four i'd stayed out watching the super bowl you know i was a right. steelers fan oh you were you were a dirty steelers fan oh, i didn't realize that huh. and then i have to say i'm married into into eagles territory so oh, so no. people listening might be like what you went from pittsburgh to philly but you know yeah it's uh yeah it's kind of a different story there sports bigamist that's that's terrible <laughs> um but you know and she was also talking about the travel though i mean yeah that's a really good point because would it would it just be sort of west coast based teams that would that would come over right that was the initial plan for sure uh-huh. uh, and 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 i think it's really hard you have so many constituents here if you are Russell Wilson, you're trying to build your brand, you want to come over here and play in front of people. But if and you he plays are, for Seattle, by the way, which yeah, is a West Coast and team. So, right. and, so, yeah. and so, you know, like from the time of everything, that ticks every box for him. If you're someone who's on the edges of the roster, do you want your season disrupted? And, and this is not specific to football. You know, NBA teams have had this problem. Like the big superstars want to come. Yeah. The roster players are like, I need my routine. I yeah. need my gym time. I need my... You know, like my like, I don't want any disruption whatsoever. And so, you know, different people kind of want different things, and they have to satisfy all those those uh, you know stakeholders, I guess. Yeah. Well, that was, I thought that was a fascinating interview. I'm I'm really glad we talked to her. That is our show for this week. Thanks again to Stephanie Shaw. We have had some fantastic feedback and some great questions, especially on Josh Lee's appearance last week. He's the um, eSports tournament director at Perfect World. Keep the questions coming this way. One of these days, I think what what I want to do is do some kind of a mailbag episode where, you know, we'll we'll answer your questions. Yeah, we had some really interesting uh, stuff coming in. So that that was nice. Thank you. So you can find me on Twitter.com slash Hygballion. Mark, where can people find you? Uh, yeah, Twitter, Dryer China, or uh, yeah, send me an email, mark at chinasportsinsider.com. Uh, let us know what, what you want us to talk about. If you have any questions or comments, uh, all feedback welcome. Uh, we will be back next week. Mm-hmm.